before the Lord. But let's come to Psalm 44 as we come to the Word. This is, of course, our Reformation weekend that's coming. As we on us in a on Friday evening, very quickly. And I was praying over it, and this psalm came to mind. So we don't have much time, so maybe I'll just read verse 1, and then we'll read the verses as we, we go through the psalm. Psalm 44, verse 1. We have heard with our ears, O God, our fathers have told us what work thou didst in their days in the times of old. I don't know if you've ever questioned the benefit of history. I know I have. Not because there isn't benefit in history, but because it's so difficult at times to really know what actually occurred. It's challenging since we cannot assess with the accuracy of the Lord what has happened in the past. There is therefore a danger of elevating a devil, unknowingly of course, or even condemning a saint, since we really don't know all the details in the way God knows the details. And yet, Scripture puts an emphasis upon history, redemptive history, how God has worked in history, and I think we are to see it not just in what has been inscripturated, if we can use that term, but also in that which has happened over time. We are to learn from the past. And so we ought to honestly assess and learn from it because there's profit for us and glean from it with the recognition that every single person with all that they may have accomplished is still just a sinner saved by grace. So we do well not to elevate them too highly, but only insofar as we honor God in their remembrance. This psalm begins with the three words, we have heard, we have heard. The blessing of hearing things that drive you to prayer. And that's what happens in this psalm. And I have preached this psalm before. I was looking over it and thinking, I have a, I have a sermon on this whole psalm, but I'm not going to look at it. <laughs> I'm just going to reflect on it afresh this morning, what it is that I want to put before you. So maybe the other sermon's a better sermon, I don't know. But uh, here are my reflections upon this as I looked at it today. Just on the language we have heard. First, consider with me the human instruments by which they heard. We have heard with our ears, O God. Our fathers have told us. Our fathers have told us. Here's a man who recognizes the value of previous generations, especially in the information that can be transmitted to them, to the present, by those of the past. Now, if you read over this psalm, it would seem evident to me that he is thinking about what the fathers have recorded in Scripture, what it is you find in the books of Moses, as well as perhaps especially in the time of, of Joshua uh, the Lord's deliverance in the lives of his people. But regardless of where you pin the history that the psalmist has in mind, it, there's still this aspect of the generation at present hearing things from the past and that benefiting them. We are not to live isolated in our own generation, detached from what has happened in the past. We can't 
Though we may endeavor to do so to our own folly and shame, we are to hear what our fathers have said. And our fathers then become instruments, instruments to communicate to us things that we ought to know and learn. Again, we can learn from them, from their mistakes, as well as from their exhortations and positive examples. And that's what we will learn, I trust, this weekend. As Dr. Matsko and Dr. McKnight stand before us, inevitably there will be a gleaning upon history, men from the past, events of the past, and we are to come with ears ready to hear what our fathers have told us. But not only here is the human instruments by which they heard, the divine testimony of which they heard. What work thou didst in their days, in the times of old. What work thou didst in their days. That's what they were hearing. Not what work they did, but what work God did. And so the subject is important. This isn't about simply reflecting upon men. This is about how God used men, how God worked in and through men. And that's the important thing to bear in mind. As I was thinking upon this, I asked myself, well, if, if I was living in a, let's say, a generation or two after Christ and the apostles, and I was saying these words, what work thou didst in their days, in the times of old, what would come to mind? For the psalmist, he is going back to Exodus, he's going back to Joshua, he's going back to see how God put them in the land as he had promised. But how would the generations just after Christ and the apostles have considered this? What work thou didst in their days, in the times of old? They might go back, not quite to Moses and Joshua and so on, but they would go back, no doubt, to what God did through the ministry of our Savior and through the apostles subsequently and consider the work of Christ in his death, the work of Christ in his resurrection, the work of Christ in his ascension and the, all the hope that that brought as he promised to them the Holy Spirit who would come. And then to see that come and see the influence of that, what work thou didst in their days would bring them to Pentecost. It would bring them to the 3,000 converted, to the 5,000 converted, to the spread of the gospel in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, onto the uttermost parts of the earth. And so they would come maybe to a lull in the work, to the time perhaps even when you're reading in the book of Revelation the letters to the churches and their indications of slowing and discouragement in the advancement of the cause of Christ. And you would come and you would think in these terms, what work thou didst in their days, in the times of old? And they say, Lord, do it again. Do it again. Don't leave us to decline. Thirdly, the positive message which they heard. What did they hear? Verse 2, How thou didst drive out the heathen with thy hand, and plantest them. How thou didst afflict the people, and cast them out. For they got not the land in possession by their own sword, neither did their own arm save them. But thy right hand, and thine arm, and the light of thy countenance, because thou hast a favor unto them. This is the positive message, isn't it? He drove out the heathen. He, he worked against the unbelieving. And he planted his people. And he was pleased to give them deliverance from their enemies and cast them out. And again, the emphasis in verse 3 of the fact that they didn't accomplish this themselves. 
they got not the land in possession by their own sword, neither did their own arm save them, but thy right hand. And here you see them, you see him gazing upon that place where all the hope of the people of God has always rested, at the right hand of God. It is to that place where our Savior has gone, is it not? It has always been to the right hand of God that people have looked. The right hand of God signifies power, signifies authority. And this is where our Savior has gone and given again that hope that at the right hand it's not some obscure idea, it's not purely some imagery that we have, but there's a person there at the right hand, and He ever lives to make intercession for us. And you can see then how this deliverance does not come by the power of the church in and of herself. They don't look to their own great men, but they look to the right hand, to the arm of God, to the light of His countenance, which looks upon them with favor, though it has the favor unto them, again, because they're blessed with spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. So they had this encouraging, positive message, one of redemption from slavery, one of deliverance from enemies, one of victory in their life. Their fathers told them this is a past of victory. What we saw, what God did for us was victorious. It's not some history of everything that could have been, but what did occur, what was accomplished for the encouragement of future generations. Well, certainly there are periods of history that we can look at and we can be uh, encouraged by the fact that we're not the only difficult day that's ever existed. But there is more benefit, I think, of seeing what happened despite those dark days, of seeing how God worked despite the hardship of those times. And we are inclined to look back to other days and imagine that in some way there was, God was working differently and that things were easier because, let's say, Americans had a, a greater proclivity to believe in God. And what are we doing? What are we doing when we say that the advancement of the church was based upon the fact that the average American was more sympathetic to the gospel? Are we not seeing the success of the work based upon something inherent in man? And this is what the psalmist recognizes. It never was about what we could see in anyone but in God. God is the one who worked. He had a favor, and he still has a favor for his people. So this is the positive message which they heard. It was designed to give them impetus and hope and to fuel their prayers, which is exactly what we find here. Which brings us then to the fourth main point, the prayerful response to that which they heard. And this, will, this is the rest of the psalm, really. It opens up into this, this prayerful response to what he has heard. From verse 4, we might say, first of all, he recognizes who God is. Thou art my king, O God. Command deliverances for Jacob. Thou art my king king. What's he saying? This one that their fathers looked to, who was their king, he says, you're my king. That the relationship our fathers had to you is the same relationship I have to you. There's no difference. Oh, beloved, as you hear this weekend, what God has done in the past, 
don't think to yourself that they had access to greater power than you have, or that in some way you are limited in some fashion from enjoying what they enjoyed. There is no difference. There is no difference, no, no meaningful difference, beloved. There is not one syllable in God's Word that would declare that in some way you are to look at your generation and say, whatever success the church has enjoyed in the past, I will never know it in my day. There's not a syllable of it. Oh, I know people say, well, you get to the last of the last days and evil man wax worse and worse and maybe we are to expect that nothing will occur. There's a lot of assumptions put into that. A lot of assumptions. As Mr. Paisley used to say, he never reads of, despite the fact evil men get worse and worse, he never reads of, of God getting weaker and weaker. Evil men are not to hinder the work of God. Evil men, in fact, only are part of the entire narrative to advance the work of God. Evil men have never hindered the work of God, not in any meaningful way. The work always continues as God intended. And it will. It always shall. And so he says, Thou art my king. We can come and pray the same, can't we? Lord, you're our king. You're our God. Command deliverances for Jacob. What is he resting in? He's resting in this understanding he is entirely sovereign. The problems that he feels in his own soul, and we'll get to the language, you'll see just how discouraging he feels his day to be. But despite that, he begins on this note of victory, of confidence, of rock-solid faith that this is my God. He is king. As he was king for our fathers, he is king for us. Let us not fear. Let us not imagine that in some way he has been dethroned. He is still king. Also, he reflects hope for the future. He not only recognizes who God is, but he reflects hope for the future. Verse 5, Through thee will we push down our enemies. Through thy name we will tread them under that rise up against us. This is what we're going to do. <laughs> Here's a man who's praying and again, we'll get to just to the challenges he faces. But he is, he is filling his mind with a sense of, of truth. He can see challenges, but the eye of faith sees the answer. And that's how he's beginning his prayer, which isn't always the case. Often when you read through the prayers of God's people, they begin in a very low, discouraged state, and they ascend over time into a position of faith. But here the psalmist is beginning with a sense of his hope. Thou art my king, O God, command deliverances for Jacob. Through thee will we push down our enemies. Through thy name we, will we tread them under that rise up against us. In other words, he's anticipating the same that their fathers enjoyed. It was through God that they pushed down their enemies. It was through God's name they would tread under those that rose up against them. Their fathers enjoyed it. He says the same will be true for them. Do you believe it? I mean, do you really believe it? You come to this prayer meeting and some sense of there's no hope or the best days for the church are in the past or the greatest advances are just to be experienced only in books. <laughs> I mean, is that it? 
Or can it still be experienced? Can we pray and say, through thee will we push down our enemies? Lord, you're still going to do it. He realizes, thirdly, the source of his strength. As he opens up in prayer here, he realizes the source of his strength. Verse 6, For I will not trust in my bow, neither shall my sword save me. What's he saying? He's going back, isn't he? He's drawing from the same truth. Back in verse 3, They got not the land and the possession by their own sword, neither did their own arms save them. So he's saying the same thing. I will not trust in my bow, neither shall my sword save me. Deliverance is not in any material things I have, in strategy, in manpower, in alliances, in tactics. No, he he is remembering we need to turn to God. Our hope is in the Lord. That's why we pray. That's why we pray. As soon as we stop praying, as soon as you close the door to the prayer meeting, you no longer believe verse 6. That's why the prayer meeting is so crucial, because it is a reflection of people who do not trust in their own bow or their own sword. They have no sense that by their own material might and strength and effort and energy, they will accomplish the work. They have a deep sense, rather, that only God can do this. Now, they understand the responsibilities, just like the psalmist does. But the source of strength is not found in him or in the community he represents. Also, he remembers the victories of the past, verse 7 and 8. But thou hast served us. And he's talking about his own, their own very victories. Now they're coming back not to what their fathers told them, but what they had experienced. Thou hast saved us from our enemies and hast put them to shame that hated us. In God we boast all the day long and praise thy name forever. We have known a measure of deliverance. Now, you're on the Christian road any length of time. You're going to notch up little experiences of deliverance. You are. You're going to. Young people, you need to look for it. You need to chart your own course and see your own, in your own history victories for God. But we are living in a time where those victories seem of lesser significance. They're not making the same impact as they did in the past. Well, we're going to hear again this weekend, in part at least, will encourage us to see what God has done before. But we need to be able to say what God has done for us. So reflect in your own mind as you come to pray tonight. What has the Lord already done for you? What little token can you bring to bear in your own memory, by your own experience, you can say, God, I, I know, I know you hear and answer prayer. I know it because I've experienced it in this way and the other. Well, you remember those victories as you come to the place of prayer. You see how memory plays a part in praying? You see it? You see how what they were told from their fathers as well as what they've personally experienced feeds in somewhat the prayer life of the saint? Then he reviews the challenges of the present. Verse 9 through 16 just reflect on this very briefly, just going through the lines where he, he, here's where you see the present scenario. Here's where you see what he's going through and why he's driven into the place of prayer. Verse 9, but, and note this, thou hast cast off and put us to shame, and goest not forth with our armies. There have been attempts to go and fight 
and those attempts have failed. The recent history now is beginning to write differently than in the past. The recent history seems to be indicating that as they go forward, they're experiencing failure. That they're not enjoying what they did before. And he is conscious of this. He's not coming before God and he's not telling himself fake narratives of what really is going on. And he's not making false conclusions about what really is the problem. He's getting to the root of the issue. In our failure, it is an indication that God, in some fashion, has withdrawn. He is not giving success as he once did. Now, it is incumbent on us as as the children of God to be sensitive to this. You can't read the book of Acts without indicate, or seeing the indication over and over again that with the preaching of the gospel and with the lives of God's people lived out as they ought, that in some way that made an impact on every community where the church was visible and known. And not just the preachers, everyone seemed to be making an impact, everyone. And so we ask ourselves, are we having that same impact today? I think the conclusion might be the same as the psalmist. It feels like God does not go with us. Thou makest us to turn back from the enemy. You see a fearfulness. There's a fearfulness in the church. She doesn't want to venture out. She begins to lose that bigness of her vision for the kingdom. You know, in those bold endeavors, when the church is advancing, it always advances with men and women who are expecting great things from God and attempting great things for God, as Kerry put it. Their mind gets filled with a sense of what may be, and they venture out in trust of God that it may be so. But in a time whenever there's defeat, in a time when there's difficulty, you will see among the people of God a sense that they turn back. They which hate us spoil for themselves. They're making fun. They're they're, they're taking what they want from us. Do we not feel that way? Have we not known far too many be plucked from the families of God's people by the devil, taken straight into the world? Does it not feel at times when we look at some of our connections in our families, it feels like the devil is running amok? And he is taking for himself souls as spoil for himself. That's what it feels like at times. Verse 11, thou hast given us like sheep appointed for meat and hast scattered us among the heathen. Do you know people that used to sit in a pew with you who are now scattered and don't worship anywhere? Do you know people who used to be part of God's work in various capacities and yet today they don't, they're not found in any house of God? Scattered. It's like the enemy has come in and just had a field day like we're given as sheep for slaughter. 
Verse 12, thou sellest thy people for naught and dost not increase thy wealth by their price. It's like you're just giving us away, Lord. That's a strong language. Seems to fit some of our own context. You see, what we're going through today, the, the, the lull in God's work is not a new experience. The difficulty of what the church is facing in, in the West, and, and make, don't look at it in any other way. The West is facing the greatest struggle she has faced in centuries. What we're faced with right now, we, we are facing something that is unprecedented in the last several hundred years. Now, there have been battles. There have been battles. But what we're facing right now is at the cusp of a complete change in which the entire values of our nations function. It's like the Lord has just given all away, all the rich heritage of Canada, of America, of some of the European nations. It's all just being handed over as if there's no value in it whatsoever. The Lord's not afraid to hand over empty religion. And so this is what, this is what the psalmist feels like. Thou makest us a reproach to our neighbors, a scorn and a derision to them that are round about us. Thou makest us a byword among the heathen, a shaking of the head among the people. You see, you feel, you feel the heart. My confusion is continually before me, and the shame of my face hath covered me for the voice of him that reproacheth and blasphemeth by reason of the enemy and avenger. He can't make head nor tail of this, and he is ashamed of what it is that's going on all around him. So this is his review of the challenges of the present. He then represents the faithful remnant. He represents the faithful remnant because there's always a remnant. Verse 17. All this has come upon us, yet have we not forgotten thee. Neither have we dealt falsely in thy covenant. There are a people that remain faithful. A people still who believe and trust. A people who rest in their God, who trust in Him for salvation. They're not dealing falsely. They're not living a, like an outrightly re rebellious life. This has come upon a remnant that are trying by God's grace to remain faithful. Verse 18, our heart is not turned back, neither have our steps declined from thy way. Though thou hast sore broken us in the place of dragons and covered us with the shadow of death, despite everything we've gone through, we remain looking heavenward. This, this is a test. These seasons come as purging seasons of the church. Because I'm quite sure this didn't reflect on absolutely everyone who once was found among the people of God. Some of them, no doubt, had gone. But there remains a people. And despite the hardship, despite all the difficulty, despite the discouragement, the persecution, the hardship, 
everything that they're experiencing, affecting them materially, physically, and no doubt in other ways as well. Despite all of that, they remain faithful. Their heart will not turn back. They won't decline from God's ways. And despite how difficult it's been, they keep looking heavenward. So verse 20, if we have forgotten the name of our God, or stretched out our hands to a strange God, shall not God search this out? For he knoweth the secrets of the heart. God, you know. He believes, he hopes, he desires that there has been no falsehood among them, and if there has, God will search it out. He knoweth the secrets of the heart. And then he says, Yea, for thy sake are we killed all the day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Tremendous text that you find in Romans 8. I don't want to take time there, but it's just how the, the apostle takes the, uh, the context of nothing separating, separating us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord, taking that whole idea and seeing that tribulation and everything, all the things that come against them to try and separate or bring division between God and his people, because of Christ it can't be done. And so he quotes from this psalm, he's basically saying, even when we go through this kind of experience, even when it seems like we're being led as sheep to the slaughter and we're, we're just being left to martyr, almost it seems like waste, we're still more than conquerors through him that loved us. That's his conclusion. Such is our victory in Christ that we can be utterly destroyed in this life and still be victors. That the church can appear to be utterly flattened and the devil seems to be running amok, as we mentioned, and has, having a field day and saint after saint is being persecuted and suffering and being martyred and these horrors can happen and still more than conquerors through Christ. So what the apostle does is he, he, he draws from this psalm the fact that even in the first century there was a feeling that identified with the psalmist They had seen Christ and all the victorious work that he had accomplished. They had seen him ascend into heaven. They had all the encouragement of his ongoing ministry as priest of the people of God. They had the the experience of the Holy Spirit poured out upon the church in power. They had all of this. And they had seen great advances, but they had also seen great loss. Many had given their lives. Suffering was very palpable. And the sense of Nero and the rising persecution, it, it, it could be felt. It could be felt, they could felt that there was change in the air. As Paul is writing to the Roman, the church at Rome. But we are more than conquerors. So then, we have this final point here. He reaches to heaven to reverse the circumstances. He reaches to heaven to reverse the circumstances. Verse 23 Awake, why sleepest thou, O Lord? Arise, cast us not off forever. Wherefore hidest thou thy face, and forgettest our affliction and our oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust, our belly cleaveth unto the earth. Arise for help, and redeem us for thy mercy's sake. Tremendous, tremendous prayer. Oh, take this language on your lips, child of God. Take it, because as he bows his head, as his soul feels like he's, he's in the dust, it's like he's reaching the arm of faith heavenward, trying to shake the Lord. Oh, 
in the most reverent way possible. Notice us, Lord. Notice us. We need you now. Awake. Awake. There's a sense of immediacy. It has to happen now. This is too pressing. This is what happens when things really get tough. God's people begin to pray in a way their backs are against the wall. There's a sense that there must be an answer now. That's what happened when Peter was imprisoned. They felt that, didn't they? He's going to die. He'll be dead in the morning. God, you need to respond. You need to work now. That's why they prayed all night. They couldn't say, they couldn't say we'll meet you in the morning for prayer. It would have been too late. Peter had been walking to his death. Had to pray all night. Now when we get to the point when things are so bad in America that we feel we have to come for nights of prayer and pray through the night, then things will really be bad. And maybe we'll really begin to pray this way. Awake, why sleepest thou, Lord? Arise. Awake, arise. Arise for our help. This is, this is great. Oh, may the Lord teach us. May help us. Some of you need it. You need it. You need it in your life. And need it in ways I don't even know. You need it. You need divine intervention. You see the trouble. You see the difficulty. You see things slipping through your fingers. You feel as if things are getting out of control in the family, in other ways. And you need God to intervene. This is the way to pray. So we learn how God has worked in the past. It provokes us to believe Him for the present and to call upon His name. But the Lord help us. We'll sing before we pray. Thank you.